Hello everyone and happy Thanksgiving. If this is your first time joining us, I'm your host Jackson Holmes and welcome. Today on the show we have some very special news. In our main segment, I explain how I would fix Walt Disney World's Hollywood Studios, one of my favorite parks which is currently in a bit of an identity crisis. Later, we revamp our TV segment, which wasn't really working, into a permanent installation of the Beyond One as we discuss one of my favorite movies of all time, Knives Out. And then to wrap up today's episode, we continue our series explaining gods and Disney lore. So come with us as we go where very few have gone before, to infinity and beyond. news today not much just a few little things just kidding y'all it happened chapek is out i repeat bob chapek is gone the news came out as of sunday night bob chapek has officially been fired from his position as ceo of the walt disney company for those of you who don't know why i am losing my mind over this i will explain Because the collective Disney fan community, as well as shareholders and even more, have just had a real good day. Since he was instated in 2020, very few people have at all liked Bob Chapek. Most of his prominent decisions of CEO have been ranging from semi-controversial to very, and some just straight out wrong. Like giving giving over 2,000 Imagineers barely any time to say they were going to move their entire families across the country for the relocation of Imagineering to Florida. His respect level for the creatives that make up Disney was saddening and frankly angering. And because of that, the content, whether it be the parks or especially the films, have suffered. As CEO, most his most major facet was cutting any corner possible to get the extra penny from the consumer's pocket. Instead of the Disney way of saying, yes, we are expensive, but you will get the value for what you paid for because we are the best in the business. Instead of that, he said, you will pay for whatever I say, so let's not let you and your family get out of your family vacation for less than highway robbery. And while we're at it, how how about we make cheaper, less quality content and put it on a subscription streaming service so people will pay extra to see something far less than a theatrical release. It has came as a great relief and joy to Disney fans, shareholders, Imagineers, talent agents, and executives alike to welcome back Bob Iger, who has reached out to only as of Friday to reobtain the position of Disney's CEO. This really shows you how desperate they were to find a replacement on short notice. On the front of the parks, Chapek kept the park reservation system, making the system extra difficult for Disney pass holders and common guests alike to navigate visiting the parks. For those of you who don't know, the park reservation system has been instated since the um, reopening from the pandemic, and is um, you have to make a reservation to enter the parks instead of just having a ticket, and that is your way to enter. You have to make a reservation and... Along with that, I won't get into it right now, but there's things about, um, like, a park hopping at a certain time. You can't park hop unless you have have a reservation for a park, and I don't know. It's all incredibly confusing, 
especially for new guests to the park who are to the parks that have never been before at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Um, on top of that, he made the once free Fast Pass Plus into yet another penny pinching tactic in Genie Plus. And even aside from costing money, it is yet another extreme complication for the average guest. To simply get into a Disney park, it has become incredibly more complicated than ever before. And believe me, no one is going home happy about it in the slightest. With the morale and size of Imagineering greatly shrinking, the terrible publicity for the parks, and the driving away of die-hard Disney fan annual pass holders, for the first time in years, the 2021 attendance record of Universal's Islands of Adventure was higher than that of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, the absolute most visited park in the world, creating a problem which is only prone to become worse with the opening of Universal's third main gate, Epic Universe. So the films, parks, shareholders, and creatives have all taken a terrible blow from Chapek within his tenure, leading some to wonder if Disney is dying and on its 100th birthday, too. On the trajectory Chapek was leading the company, even super fans were turning away. Cast members, Imagineers, animators, and more were leaving the company. Multiple senior Imagineers, people who have been with the company for 30 years or more, have left under Chapek. And now, we finally see that behind the curtain, the Disney board has seen and heard the things that have been happening, and now, the financials have taken a hit, with the stock market plummeting, attendance, and box office. The final straw has been pulled. Since the announcement, there have been literal celebrations over this news. People are ecstatic, and I am too. And to be honest, what a coincidence it came around the holiday season. Because y'all, he's gone. It is a frigging Christmas miracle. Anyways, now back to your regularly scheduled programming. In news from Walt Disney World, the Hatbox Ghost will be coming to the Haunted Mansion or in Orlando um, in 2023. This has been long awaited by fans of the attraction and is probably a slightly overdue addition. Tron Light Cycle Run is set to open in Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland in the spring of 2023, later than expected, but hey, we've waited this long, so what's a few more months? Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind will be receiving a holiday overlay with multiple new Christmas songs. These have not been announced yet, but most likely will as we enter the holidays. A meet and greet for everyone's favorite purple dragon is coming to guests in Epcot in late 2023. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, um, Figment will be getting a meet and greet. That was so mean at D23. He came on stage and he was like, So, everybody like Figment? Well, we're giving you a meet and greet, and the audience was going crazy because they thought they were going to announce that they were re-theming Journey into Imagination finally, but it did not happen. Um, Epcot's Monsieur Paul has reopened its doors as of October 18th, after being closed since the, begin since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, construction of Moana Journey of Water continues. As some of the set pieces begin to be placed, you can really see it start to come together finally. Um, Disney's DuckTales World Showcase Adventure will open to guests in December of this year as the replacement to Phineas and Ferb Agent P's World Showcase Adventure. This has somewhat been known to be coming for a while now, but was just officially announced last month. Construction on Roundup Rodeo, a family barbecue restaurant in Toy Story Land at Disney's Hollywood Studios, seems to be moving not slowly, smoothly, and should be a really cute experience once it's open. I'm a big Toy Story fan, so I'm excited to see what they'll do with the space. 
Fantasmic has finally reopened at Disney's Hollywood Studios. This highly beloved nighttime spectacular has been missing from the park since its closure from the pandemic in 2020 and is back alongside a brand new sequence, including characters from Moana, Mulan, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Frozen 2. Mickey's Toontown will be reopening at Disneyland Park on March 8, 2022. The Mandalorian and Grogu are now doing meet and greets at Disneyland Resort's Galaxy's Edge. And the Disney 100-year celebration will be beginning at Disneyland January 27, 2023. Wrapping up news for today, and outside of the crazy news we started off with, this is probably the most surprising. Um, Disney has acquired the world's largest cruise ship and is expecting to sell it sail it overseas beginning in 2025 and this is in addition to the expanding of the disney fleet um that started with the disney wish um with two new original ships including the disney treasure introduced at d23 still in the pipeline and that's it for news today what a week i mean chapek is out everybody it happened anyways i digress now i'm with the show everyone and welcome to today's main segment. Hollywood Studios is one of my favorite parks, if not my favorite park in Walt Disney World, but it's impossible to deny the fact that for many years now it has very much been in a state of disarray. The park is full of incredible lands, attractions, and dining, but among all of it there doesn't seem to be any cohesive theme. The reason behind this is the result of many years of history dating back to the park's opening in 1989, but maybe we'll explore that another day. Today, as well for the next few episodes, I'm going to attempt to give my thoughts on how to possibly fix this park very close to my heart, while also keeping the charm of the Hollywood that never was and always will be. Okay, let's start at the very beginning, as Dame Julie Andrews once said, a very good place to start. The entrance, as well as Hollywood Boulevard, are, as I see it, okay to keep nearly untouched, except for if it was found necessary to give a cosmetic touch-up, which is usually covered in average maintenance as far as paint, street work, and things like that are concerned. The golden age 40s, 50s Hollywood aesthetic are essential to the park, and to me, at least, retains the nostalgic, classic, refreshing feel and look as it had the first time I ever visited. It serves as the perfect sort of main street for Hollywood Studios. When entering into the hub, or what the park map refers to as center stage, is where some changes could be made. Though it was heartbreaking for Disney fans to lose the great movie ride, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway truly is a great fit for the park, and finally gives Disney's Fab Five, or as I like to say, Sensational Six, you can't forget Pluto, their own attraction. The only thing I would change is that the Mickey and Minnie animatronics should be switched out for something a little more physical. While the projection mapping works wonderfully in other places in the ride, the round exterior faces of Mickey and Minnie don't look great with the projection mapping technology. And in the train at the beginning and end of the attraction, Goofy should also be made into a physical animatronic, with some sort of set surrounding him inside the train. It is fairly obvious, especially in the front row, he's only a screen. 
and if the rest of the attraction serves as any reference point, the projection mapping will look great for a set of this sort. Those will be my only critiques, though. It is a super fun and cute attraction, a near-perfect replacement for the fan-favorite great movie ride. Now, before we move on to Echo Lake, let's tackle the animation courtyard. <sighs> Among all of the areas of the park, this is hands down, in my opinion, the biggest mess. The headliner attraction of the area is the Voyage of the Little Mermaid stage show, which has been closed since the initial resort-wide shutdown from the pandemic. And when it's operational, it doesn't fit in the theming of the park in the slightest. The Disney Junior attraction is a fun addition for younger kids, but doesn't at all fit cohesively in the park's theming. And Star Wars Launch Bay is... Well, it has very much overstayed its welcome in the park. So this is how I would fix it. Starting off, I would remove the arch and walls separating the animation courtyard from the hub. Then, sadly, the Voyage of the Little Mermaid takes its final bows and closes permanently. The space will then be rethemed into a Broadway-style theater, where there will be a show dedicated to Disney on Broadway, with a mix of songs from productions like The Lion King, Aladdin, Newsies, Sister Act, and more. One of the greatest things about this attraction is it will be subject to change without notice given variety is built into its format. This would also work well in the space because think about it. A Disney production is touring and for one night only, exclusively ticketed, you could go see a Broadway caliber production in the park. I think this would introduce a broader audience to a division of the company that in my opinion doesn't get enough credit outside of the classic film-based shows such as Aladdin. Now moving over to the Disney Junior attraction. Truthfully, it really isn't bad how it is. Little kids who need to burn some steam don't really care what characters are on stage, but having characters they know does help. And whether we like it or not, how many of them are watching Disney Junior on live TV? Not many. Kids' tastes vary depending on the child, and though 10 years ago before streaming ruled the TV market, Disney Junior was a popular channel, the tables have turned, and kids are far more subjective now when it comes to what Disney content they consume. Which is why we should replace the show with something a little more timeless. A meet-and-greet location, as well as an indoor playland, similar to what the Magic Kingdom has with Dumbo, but larger, and including theming to films, not Disney Junior shows. The play center will be split to sections, similar to the Oceaneers Club on Disney Cruise Line. Maybe Toy Story, Frozen, and Encanto will be some options to sort the area. Now the only thing left in the animation courtyard is Launch Bay, a space that doesn't really know what it wants to be. A meet and greet location, a museum, or a placeholder for something better that never comes. One of those options, though, intrigues me in my quest to fix Hollywood Studios. Museum. Go with me here. You retheme the building to a Disney film museum. You add areas dedicated to each major division of the company. Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and a sprinkle of 20th Century Fox. Move the Walt Disney artifacts from the Walt Disney Presents to this new museum, as well as the film narrated by Julie Andrews about his life. The archives bring in artifacts from each of these divisions, setting up for easily interchangeable exhibits. One month, the Lucasfilm area could be Indiana Jones, and the next, original trilogy Star Wars, giving people a reason to come back to the museum on their next trip. And even if it's not incredibly popular, it's not like they're paying to maintain a ride or license characters. After the initial change, they would be only be paying the same fees they had originally to maintain Launch Bay, which didn't really seem like much of a problem. Now the only thing left to do is strip this area of its status as a land. We've already taken away the arch and walls acting as a physical separation, 
Now let's take the name Animation Courtyard off the map, allowing it to just be a part of the hub. Then retheme the outside of the buildings out of the bland soundstage look into the Art Deco Golden Age of Hollywood theming of the hub, as well as Hollywood and Sunset Boulevards. On the outside of Voyage, now our Disney Broadway attraction, we would have a classic theater facade with signage advertising the performance inside and neon lights that would glow at night, illuminating the facade and the theater. Launch Bay, now our Disney Film Museum, would be given a more regal museum facade, though maintaining that 40s city style. How one would do this, I do not know, because I'm not an imaginary architect, but I believe it would look great if you could figure it out. Now we have Disney Junior, which has become our kids' play area. This is the hardest in my mind to think of how to retheme, with the large soundstage being very prevalent behind it. But as I said, not an Imagineering architect. I'm sure they could figure out a very satisfying way to implement the building and to the rest of the area's larger Art Deco style. And that's it for the Animation Courtyard. Now let's move out of the hub into Echo Lake. This is an area doesn't need nearly as much work as Animation Courtyard, but still could use a little love. Starting off, we have the Frozen sing-along at the Hyperion Theater, which I truly love. Not only for the air-conditioned experience to keep cool in Florida summers, though that is very nice, but primarily for the hilarious improv of the Arendelle Historians. If it wasn't for them, I would say just remove the entire show and replace it with something more fitting for the park. But they are enough of a hidden gem that I would simply recommend that it possibly be moved to somewhere in Epcot's Norway Pavilion or Magic Kingdom in an outdoor amphitheater where the theming would make more sense. As for the current building itself, we'll get back to that in a minute. Now we'll head over to the Dockside Diner Quick Service up against the lake. Others may have a different take, but I think this quick service can stay. The exterior holds multiple Easter eggs to classic films and doesn't seem to me to take anything out of the park. All I think is that it should be turned from simply the Dockside Diner to Donald's Dockside Diner, beginning a stronger animation theme I would like to begin to try and spread throughout the area. You can keep some Easter eggs outside, what Disney fan doesn't love that, just change them to animation related Easter eggs, and give the boat some more cartoony characteristics. Not as blunt as something out of Toontown, just some proportion changes to make it look less blocky, and brighter colors that would pop a bit more. Then just change the signage. From here, let's move over to that awkward Mayan temple facade and remove it. It is in reference to a real theater in Los Angeles, but with the new animation theme we're transitioning Echo Lake into, it doesn't work, and all around just looks out of place. Moving past the Mayan temple facade slash awkward ATM machine, we have a cute little offshoot area with some benches and a quick service headed on to Hollywood Boulevard. What I particularly like about this area is that there is a billboard above one of the buildings advertising Maroon Studios, the fictional film studio featured in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which will work very much to our favor as we retheme Echo Lake. Heading past this area, we have Hollywood and Vine, which is a buffet-style 50s diner. Looking at it in preparation for this, I find it to be quite outdated, and, think, and I think it should be rethemed to simply Minis, a new table service themed around, as the name suggests, Minnie Mouse. It would take out the half-baked attempt at a classic 50s diner and replace it with a restaurant paying homage to a sort of vintage feel, but more polished as a family sit-down, all set in the cartoon world of the Fab Five. Now we have one of the shining jewels of this park, the 50s Primetime Cafe. I love this restaurant. It is a staple. 
Without it, the park really wouldn't be the same, which is why we are keeping it. How, you may ask, when it doesn't fit in the new theme of Echo Lake? Well, we're simply going to move the entrance. How do we do this when the only place to move it to is entering the area occupying the Indiana Jones stunt show? Well, go with me here. I know, I know, I love it too, but it has to go. It has lived its fair share of time, and while it works right now in my Hollywood Studios revamp, it doesn't. But what if I said I could do even better than what's there currently? There are probably many of you who don't care either way, but for those of you who think this is a terrible idea, just you wait. But sadly, that is what you'll have to do. Wait. Because that is all the time we have for today. Next time, we'll continue our reeking of Hollywood Studios. But for now, on with the show. everyone and welcome back to the show. As I said in the intro, this segment is now going to be a permanent installation of the Beyond One, a concept I introduced in our last episode. For those that didn't listen, this is a part of the show where we will be discussing things outside of the Disney bubble. Okay, for this episode we will be talking about one of my absolute favorite films in honor of its sequel releasing in theaters the 23rd of this month, Knives Out. I could watch this movie multiple times in a week and not be tired of it. Which doesn't sound like much, but there are very few films I have that kind of relationship with. The distinct color choices, the wonderfully crafted story and score, the movie makes you feel every moment. It makes you want to try and solve the mystery yourself. There are so many things I love about this movie, and so many things I'm nervous and excited about for Knives Out Glass Onion, its sequel releasing on the 23rd which as of me recording this is tomorrow and I'm going to go see it. I'm very excited. Um, but before we get into the movie, as always, major spoiler warning. This is a movie that you will not want to be spoiled on if you haven't seen it before. So I'd recommend if you haven't seen it that you go ahead and skip to our theory. Spoiler skip timestamp will be in the show notes of this episode. Okay, spoilers in three, two, one. This film, in my opinion, is a masterfully crafted murder mystery. And one of the things that make it feel so authentic to the genre are the clues spread throughout the entire film. By the third act, you can solve the mystery of who truly killed Harlem Thrombey, Christopher Plummer, if you've really been playing attention. I adore how the movie very much gives in to the inherent cheese level that comes with making a classic clue-style murder mystery, but at the same time, the characters and setting while very much popping on screen, don't feel overplayed. The film is clearly split into three acts. The best I could suss out of when these acts begin and end are the first act being from the beginning of the film through when Marta is home with her mom, the second being with the security tape scene and ending with the conversation about the Slayer rule with Alan, Frank Oz, who read the will, from there until the end being the final act. I also love the film's, um, clear use of running themes. I'll explain some of those here. 
Hey everybody, Future Jax here. I just wanted to let you know that in what I was attempting to talk about here with these running themes, there are some <clears throat> better words I could have used to describe what this is. And what it actually has been described as by other people reviewing the movie and the director is a principle called Chekhov's gun. And the idea of Chekhov's gun is that if something is... Nothing can be um, irrelevant or unimportant in the story. If it's introduced, it needs to later become important. You can't just set something up for it not to amount to anything. Um, some other <clears throat> uh, versions of this idea would be um, in um, the idea of a MacGuffin, which is pretty much an idea that's introduced in a story that's used as a plot device in the film, but um, doesn't really have any larger purpose in the story. Some of these that I'm about to explain could be considered a MacGuffin and not Chekhov's gun, but I do know for a fact Chekhov's gun is um, used in this film, as this film is a very good example of how to use Chekhov's gun correctly in um, writing or film. So I just wanted to go ahead and um, let you know about that. Now enjoy the rest of the episode, and see if you can figure out which ones are MacGuffins and which ones would be considered Chekhov's gun. The first one I'll speak on is the baseball. It serves the purpose of traveling through the story like a sort of marker almost. The first time we see it is in the flashback of Richard arguing with Harlan over the fact he's cheating on his wife, Harlan's daughter, Linda. Later, Richard sneaks back into Harlan's office after his demise to steal the note holding the secret of his affair. What he doesn't know though is that Harlan and Linda use invisible ink notes as a way to communicate. So when he opens the letter, it is seemingly blank. From here, he proceeds to sit it on the desk and throw the baseball, also on the desk, out the window. This will lead to the next scene where Daniel Craig's Boumois Blanc finds the ball in the yard. From here, he will keep the ball with him until the scene before the world reading where the family is together and is arguing, as seems to be a common occurrence, angry at Ransom Drysdale, Chris Evans. Here, Blanc will toss the baseball into the air, catch it, and leave the room as the family incessantly bickers. As said by the film's writer and director, Ryan Johnson, this is a device used to connect this scene and the next, where he will throw the baseball for the dogs, who will then return with him, sorry, return to him with a broken piece in the trellis, um, broken by Marta, Ana de Armas, on the night of Harlan's death. A clue that will be a great asset to Plonk as he solves the mystery. Later, the ball will end up being taken to Linda by the dogs, who will then go back to the office to return the ball and find the note which she reveals um, the ink on, leading to the truth about Richard, bringing the usage of the baseball full circle. Now we slightly touch on this when talking about the baseball, but the dogs also play a large role as a plot device in the film. It is commented on by Blanc that the best judge of character is a dog. After this in the film, both Richard as well as Ransom are ambushed by the dogs while they are gentle towards other characters like Marta. This theme of a great sense of character really defines the dog's roles in the movie. They are helping to silently lead the family to the truth the entire time. Blanc in the trellis piece, Linda in the ball at the end. They wake up Meg when they bark at Ransom's return to switch the medicine vials. Heck, they can be seen in the film's opening shot. What more proof do you need to say that they're at the very least slightly important? Now the third and final plot device I'll speak on is the coin seen when Blanc is interrogating Marta. After Blanc asks her to explain her night with Harlan, he flips a coin in the air. Then we see Marta and a slow motion shot of the coin mid-flip, 
and then flash back to Harlan's last half hour. This leads us to believe that the flashback we see is Marta remembering her night with Harlan and his instructions to seem unguilty when she's interviewed. After this flashback ends, the coin finishes flipping, reinforcing that all of what we just saw went through Marta's head during the, du during the duration of the coin flip. Two more devices I love are more callbacks to satisfyingly tie up the story, but I love the use of the knives and the coffee mug. When Marta and Harlan are talking in the final moments of his life, he begins to speak on Ransom and the idea that, quote, he... Playing life like a game without consequence. <laughs> Until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife. Later, at the end of the film, when Ransom goes in to kill Marta, what does he use but a prop knife? Bravo, what a callback. And I may love this next one just as much. The coffee mug reading My House, My Rules, My Coffee is first seen at the beginning of the film with the housekeeper, Fran, bringing Harlan his breakfast, only to find him dead. Later, the mug will be seen again in Marta's hands at the very end in the film's final shot, as everyone looks back at her on the balcony of what's now her house. Then, the movie's final shot. She takes a drink from the mug, My House, my rules, my coffee. A perfect end for the film. That's interesting in itself. Everyone watching her from below. Marta, the one who started incredibly far down the food chain compared to the Thrombies, stands above every one of them, holding the rights to everything that once was theirs that they rightfully lost. Almost like they're all having some sort of clarity as they stare perplexed and frankly astonished on all fronts at Harlan's nurse, and little did they know, greatest confidant, with everything. The idea that the rich and entitled lose, even if they have merit, is incredibly interesting. Meg and Linda, Jamie Lee Curtis, have great beneficial qualities that they are still eaten up by the drama of the family, and their own self-ignorance to how Harlan really felt. Linda built a business from the ground up. She's brilliant, quick-witted, and tells things how they are. She has some of the most real, true-seeming grief out of anyone in the family, and yet she will stop at nothing to make sure she gets a cut of her father's fortune, with a smile, even if it means deceiving Marta and revealing her, and revealing her mother's citizenship, ruining her life. She doesn't seem to hold any remorse. Ruthless. Meg similarly, similarly hold, knows her worth, and she doesn't sugarcoat things. She's truly grateful to her grandfather, Harlan, for all he's done for her, and while naive toward her mother, Joni Thromby, she must know to some extent her mom's ditzy nature, yet she treats her with respect. She's good friends with Marta and loves her without a catch, but when her family pushes her, she gives in to attempting to convince Marta to give up the fortune. This seems like only an example of peer pressure, but just like the rest, she tries to milk Marta for money so she can remain in school. While inheriting family intelligence and not sugarcoating situations, she still holds a clear air of entitlement. Of course, everyone has flaws, and she did say that she agreed that if Harlan wanted Marta to have the fortune, she should. But I really like the way Ryan Johnson shaped the story, so everyone got what they deserved and what Harlan meant for them. All except Ransom, that is. Who is my next topic of discussion? Ransom, Chris Evans' character in the film, is the true murderer of our murder mystery, and really is an interesting character. He's somewhat intelligent, yet still, as Harlan puts it, Playing 
life like a game without consequence. He's incredibly smug, pompous, egotistical, and as the theme as is the theme with the children of this family, clearly and strongly entitled, much more clearly than Meg, but still recognizes the major dysfunction of his family. Same as his mother Linda, he will stop at nothing to get what he wants, even to the point of murder of his own grandfather and innocent housekeeper Fran. Throughout the film, even though his drive and intelligence to execute the plan, as well as full Marta and her period Blanc, is present and prevalent, a less seen trait of him is related to his smugness and egotistical nature. A sort of toxic masculinity is definitely present that shapes the way he treats others and carries himself. A baseline sort of buried stereotypical dumbness, stemming from his own entitlement and sheltered life. Ransom truly is, as the film puts it, Dassel. Now, I could talk about this movie for an entire episode, and might someday, but for now, I only have a few more things I'm going to touch on. Two of those, wrapping up character analysis with Marta and Harlan. Marta is a character I find to be very well written, because she doesn't in any way feel larger than life, or quick to take what Harlan made rightfully hers. She's calm and quiet, and while she does believe to some extent that the fortune is now in her hands, that it does rightfully belong to her, she doesn't have the take-what's-mine attitude most other characters may have in this situation. She's written in a way that she truly is humble, and nothing that she has or was given was by foul play or aggressive nature, but by humble attitude and simply living life the best she can, being good to other people. An interesting filmmaking choice is definitely the fact that, as I said, the film has a very clear and bold color palette that makes the other characters like Linda, Walt, Ransom, Joni, and even Harlan stand out, while Marta is different. Her, thematically, her wardrobe, makeup, and such doesn't bring her to the forefront, same as the others, symbolizing the simple fact that she is different than them. She deserves what she gets. Harlan is a wise man who in his final moments recognized the only way to fix the mess of his family was to take away the money and protection that he had provided. He cut off every one of them from the fortune, writing them all out of his will, as well as taking their current aid from them. He didn't want to hurt them and recognizes there are things he could have done better, but that doesn't change the fact he's doing what's best for them. As Meg says, he truly is a selfless man. After being told by a reputable source he was dying, his first priority was Marta getting out of this unscathed. His wisdom and cleverness gave give him a sense of virtue that in the film only Marta fully seems to recognize. The rest were too blinded by all the noise to see who their father and or grandfather truly was. Now, for those of you who listen to this and have watched the movie, believe me, this is not the final time I will be talking about it on the show. I really didn't get incredibly far, or as far as I could have, into the nuances that make this movie so appealing. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie and decide to ruin it for yourself, sorry, that's not my fault, but you should definitely still watch it. It is very much still a movie worth watching, even if you know the twists. But I will say, though, it isn't quite as fun that way. Imagine entering an escape room with the answers to every puzzle, you can still appreciate it, but it won't be as fun as it would have been otherwise. But that's it for Knives Out. I hope you all enjoyed, and after Glass Onion, we'll have a bonus episode out for that, so stay tuned. But for now, I'll leave you with this. This is a twisted web, 
and we are not finished untangling it. Not yet. Now, on with the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to the third installment in my series explaining gods in Disney lore. We left off last time talking about what I call rogue gods, meaning gods that are not members of the Olympian pantheon. Now, let's for the first time in this series, move beyond Hercules, Fantasia, and Pirates of the Caribbean, and talk about Moana for a while. This film also contains powerful gods that control some of the most powerful, yet rudimentary elements of the Disney universe such as the living embodiment of water and life. First, let's tackle the ocean, which plays as a full character in Moana and a main one at that. Now I know in this series we have already spoken on two other gods of the ocean, but I do see this one as different, in the way that it is literally the personification of the element of water. And for me, this helps explain a lot, such as the fact that water can follow orders and aid those who can control it. But this also causes a problem. If the ocean is its own entity capable of making its own decisions, why does it blindly follow orders that are clearly wrong and evil-intentioned? Such as when it is under the control of Ursula at the end of The Little Mermaid. Well, I think this is because, as we have previously mentioned, even the gods of the Disney universe have weaknesses. The ocean's weakness seems to be similar to another character with phenomenal cosmic power and a itty-bitty living space. Yes, I think the genie is a god, but I will explain that in our next episode. The ocean's weakness is it must follow the rule of the one in possession of the trident, similar to how the genie must follow the rule of the one with the lamp. But also, it is important to remember nothing has proven to us the ocean is a good or heroic character. The only thing we've seen it do that would even imply that is its mission to restore the heart of Tefiti and Moana. Why did it do this, or why was it tasked with doing so? Well, I think Moana paints a picture of the relationship between water and life. Without water, there is no life. So if that is true, it is water's responsibility to restore life. Water is a big deal in the Disney canon, and is arguably one of, if not the most powerful force of magic in what I will refer to here on out as the DCU. I know it's cheesy, don't judge me. So moving on to Tefiti. Tefiti is the goddess of life as she is depicted in Moana. The source of her power is the heart of Tefiti, making her weakness the heart being removed. Simple enough, right? Well, I thought so until I began researching for this portion of this theory and came across the final segment from Fantasia 2000, The Firebird Suite. This short also features a goddess of life that shares a striking resemblance to Tefiti and a destructive beast that shares similar abilities to Teka, death, and fire. It deeply intrigued me that this short film from Fantasia 2000, in a way, slightly mirrors the events of Moana. The Firebird Suite takes place in an uninhabited forest and portrays a fantastical representation of the end of winter and the coming of spring, life and death. Along with the gods that mirror Tefiti and Teka, water also plays a major character, but not in the same way as in Moana. 
At the beginning of the short, the goddess of life is born out of a pool of water, created from a melting icicle. Shortly after this, her form changes and grows from water to a humanoid plant-like figure, resembling Tefiti. Then she proceeds to commence spring in this forest, melting away the ice and snow and replacing it with lush greenery. After this, she continues to grow and shrink and change forms, from water to her Tefiti-like natural green state. So let's first talk about the goddess of life in this short, who yes, I do think is Tefiti, but not long before the events of Moana. How is this possible, when in Moana, Tefiti is literally a mountain island? Well, in the Firebird Suite, we see that she is capable of changing sizes. And in the Firebird Suite alone, we see she can even change states of matter. Where do we also see this in other goddesses? Sorry to keep coming back to it, but Calypso in At World's End. Calypso does these very things after she is freed from her human bonds, growing above the height of the ship and then becoming a swarm of crabs. What this tells us is that it is more than possible for, a go for the goddess of the Firebird Suite and Tefiti to be one and the same. Okay, now that we've covered that, let's move on to the short's namesake, the Firebird. The Firebird is a destructive creature that is seen ravaging the forest shortly after the beginning of spring, after the Goddess of Life inadvertently awakens it. There are a couple interesting things to point out here. As the Goddess is finishing bringing spring to the land, she attempts to cover a volcanic mountain with life, like she has to the rest of the valley, but her power ceases to work on its surface. What makes this particularly interesting, though, is that this mountain is the resting place of the Firebird. As I said, she proceeds to inadvertently awaken the beast, but after this, her power is futile against the Firebird's destruction. We'll come back to these two points in a moment, but before that, let's talk more about the Firebird. When it is awakened, its instinctive mission is to destroy life and all she created in this forest. And to do so, it manifests itself as lava in this empty volcano, and the volcano erupts. Lava spilling over the sides and destroying anything and everything in its path and attempting to destroy life herself before it finally succeeds. Then it disappears. We never see it again. Now, when I first watched this short, I immediately thought of Tefiti and Teka, but after further studying this, I think Teka and the Firebird are different beings entirely. While Teka is the absence of life, the Firebird is a giant phoenix, the purpose of which is to portray life and destruction. Not only dying itself, it kills its surroundings, resulting in new life being able to bloom. We see this in the fact that after it kills life, life returns arguably more powerful than before and is able to cover the mountain slash volcano that she hadn't been able to before with green. Now let's expound on the role of water here. At the beginning of the short, life is born from water, as I said, and after that she becomes water to cover the land with rain. There is a clear distinction and divide between water and fire in the Disney universe, deeper than in simple common sense. Fire always seems to either portray death or necessity to life in Disney films. Fire is one of the most complicated elements of magic in Disney lore to explain, being it is inherently evil, yet at the same time, in some circumstances, beyond necessary to life. I believe the best way to see it, though, is that it is good and needed in balance. In Moana, when the heart of Tefiti is missing, she becomes the living embodiment of fire. But the reason this is a bad thing is that there is no longer a balance. It is only death, no life. This is why water is so much more powerful and journeys to restore life. Water and life are nearly one and the same. 
life counteracts and controls death, and without water, this process doesn't take place. While life subdues death, at the same time, it is accepted, because in balance, death is needed. In other words, it's... But that's to talk about another day. Now let's explain the fact that Tefiti is said in Moana to have seemingly always been on her island. To explain this, we have to go back to the beginning of Earth and the Rite of Spring once more. While the Titans still reigned supreme, the Earth was covered in volcanoes. Fire was at its highest power and there was no balance. Then the Titans were defeated and life spread because water became more powerful than the fire. But in Moana, we hear that Tefiti emerged long before the land had even come from the sea. How do we explain this? If there was no one to steal the heart, how could death reign over life while Tefiti lived? Well, don't worry. Moana does not break the Disney-connected universe. The balance of fire and water was simply different back then. Moana says Tefiti emerged from the ocean and shared her power of life to the world. Originally, in this beginning scene, Moana's grandmother Tala explains in the beginning there was only ocean. This was true. Yet a couple of seconds later, when Tefiti emerges from the ocean and shares life, she seems to be doing so to pre-created islands. How is this? Well, Moana is not lying when it says in the beginning there was nothing but ocean, nor that life came when Tefiti emerged, but there was something before Tefiti. Yes, I'm saying Taka came before Tefiti. Now let me explain. The Rite of Spring takes a very scientific approach to the beginnings of Earth, so if we take it as canon, we can, al we can also take a scientific approach. It is a scientific fact that more than 80% of the Earth's land is of volcanic origin, which is why we see all of those volcanoes in the Rite of Spring. Now, many of the volcanoes responsible for forming the Earth's land are, or once were, in the ocean. This is why I believe we see Taka emerge from the water when she fights Maui at the beginning of the film. As I said earlier, the balance of water and fire, life and death, was different at the beginning of time. While the Titans reigned, there could be no balance. This is where Tala's story in Moana comes in. She says, in the beginning there was only water until the Mother Island emerged. The Mother Island, I'm proposing, was originally Taka. Scientifically, much of Earth's land was formed by hot magma rising out of underwater volcanoes and cooling, eventually breaking the surface of the water. So this original land would have been only black rock. In the DCU, the Mother Island emerged originally as Teka. Tala's story simply skips a large period of time. In Moana, we see that the Mother Island effectively becomes a volcano in the absence of the heart of Tefiti. I think that with this fact, the mystery is finally uncovered how the Disney universe began. But if you want to hear that, you'll have to tune in next time because we are all out of time for theories today. I hope you all enjoyed. Now, on to the end of the episode. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. As always, I hope you enjoyed, and don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and subscribe if you like what you hear. Thank you for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving, a magical day, and a great big beautiful tomorrow. To infinity and beyond. Music